Hi, I am Jackie Miller, and you are listening to Out of Crazy Town, your guide to divorcing a narcissist. Coercive control is a topic that needs to be addressed at every level of society. I have the foremost expert on coercive control, Dr. Christine Cochiola, on the show, and she helps us understand what coercive control is and how various types of abuse are used to exact this control over victims. Listen in as Dr. Cochiola walks us through current legislation and programs she has put into place to help victims, court professionals, and mental health providers tackle this monumental problem in our court system and our communities. Hello, welcome to Out of Crazy Town, your guide to divorcing a narcissist. I have Dr. Christine Cochiola on the show today. I'm so excited. Welcome, Dr. Cochiola. Thank you so much for having me, Jackie. You are welcome. Thank you. And um, very excited because this topic of coercive control, I don't think we can talk about enough. And I want to join in being one of the voices and getting your word out there because you are now the thought leader, <laughs> at least in the US, if not internationally, your name just has been coming up over and over. And um, I'm seeing you more everywhere, which I'm thrilled about. And so I'm excited to have you share your expertise with us today. Oh, thank you. I, I don't perceive myself that way, but thank you so much. <laughs> you are. In fact, where, where your name first came up, I was talking with a couple of clients slash colleagues and um, they first mentioned you and they said, you have to look her up right now. And so I did. And this was a few months ago. And yeah. And then I thought, where have I been? <laughs> this is what I do for a living. If I live in a cave, because you're, you're everything when it comes to coercive control. And there's so many issues I want to get into relating to this. And we'll, we'll talk about all of them, including legislature, but um, just a quick introduction for our audience with you. Um, not only do you have your doctorate in social work and are a licensed clinical social worker, you're also a professor teaching social work at, at many colleges and including an adjunct instructor at NYU, which is so cool. Um, you are known nationally and internationally for your work on coercive control and are the founding member of the International Coercive Control Conference and board member of National Coalition Against Domestic Violence. So many other things, but we'll, we'll get on with the show um, that make you overqualified to talk on this today. But And also at the end, Dr. Cochilla, I want you to get into your um, protective parenting program for everyone. So I listened to another podcast you were on and was surprised to hear your backstory about how you kind of ended up here. Do you mind sharing that with us? Sure, sure. So I actually started this work when I was 19. I became a sexual assault domestic violence counselor for the local umbrella agency. Someone very dear to me had been abused as a child and I immediately knew I wanted to do social justice work and began this work and then worked at DCF. Uh, Department of Child Welfare Agency in the state of Connecticut, became an educator, received my teaching degree, became a school social worker. I've done a lot of things in social work and in education. And then every semester teaching on the power and control wheel, actually the Duluth model of the post-separation abuse wheel, all of a sudden had these aha moments, like, wait a minute, it's really interesting how you can talk about it all of the time, but not really realize, and I think it depends on the level of the coercive controller and how pathologized they are, because it can be very nuanced. And the very, I shall say, the malignant, covert 
people do a really great job of pretending that they aren't abusive. And in a family system, when you have two beautiful children and you have a partner that you think loves you because he calls you his soulmate, right? But then he's also counterparenting and undermining you and not really interested in the great work that you're doing in your career. And thankfully, as I always say, this isn't always a self-worth issue because I had a wonderful career and I didn't need affirmation from him. Mm. It would have been nice, but I didn't need affirmation from him. And um, all of a sudden the pieces of the puzzle, like, you know, began to come together. And um, I recognized it at the time as psychological abuse. And um, I think one of the things um, I recently talked about in um, a little bit culty is this idea that, you know, there's people who are perfect prey and this idea that, what we know about victims is they tend to be empathic and fixers and really just wanting highly optimistic. The glass is half full. They live life with the glass half full. And so when you have someone who is intermittently reinforcing you with you're my soulmate, you're the best, you know, I'm so glad we're together. And then you're catching like them, like signs that maybe they're cheating, but then they diminish it or they're counter parenting, but then they're telling you they love you. It's all very confusing, even for the most, and I'm not trying to suggest that I'm the most astute, but how could I have been teaching and doing this work my entire life? And I was married to someone for 27 years. 100%. And that's very validating for a lot of people listening because yes, we, we ask that question uh, to ourselves all the time. Like, how did I not know? How did I not get what was going on? And here you have someone so educated on the subject. And if it's very nuanced and yeah. subtle over years and death by a thousand paper cuts, it takes there a while. There we go. Absolutely. Literally, as Evan Stark says, it's kind of like uh, he uses that phrase to death by a thousand paper cuts. He also says like um, carpenter ants in a house, like you don't know the foundation is literally falling from underneath you until it does. Mm -hmm. Or, um, it, and I love when he says unknowing what we should know, like if this was a friend of ours in a relationship and she was telling us all of these signs, we'd be like, oh my God, like you, like this is really unhealthy. And you know, how, like, how can I help you? And of course we never judge people who don't leave, right? Because they need our support. Right. But when it's happening to us, we can't, we don't see it clearly. Sure. Sure. Yeah. And, and you mentioned Dr. Evan Stark. And so for those of you out there listening, if you haven't heard of him, look him up too, because, you know, research, research, educate, educate. Um, he was one of the pioneers basically of, of course of control. Right. And, right. and so, yes. Amazing book. He, he took a uh, Biderman's uh, coercive control that Biderman like looked at when he looked at prisoners of war and saw how and this is in 1957 and he saw how people in uh like the korean war would actually align with any research how they would align with their abusers and you know how when we strip people down and we take away their autonomy their ability to know what they know and again maybe outside in the rest of your life you have a good sense, but in that home, in that intimate partner relationship, you lose your sense of yourself. And that's exactly what these coercive controllers want. Mm -hmm. They are mm -hmm. trying to create ego compromise in you. And what Biderman talks about is that this happens in these situations, but really what happened throughout history is we recognize that's intimate terrorism, right? Yeah. yeah. And 
Um, and so, you know, certainly Dr. Evans Stark propelled that term when it came to domestic violence because he started one of our first domestic violence shelters ever in our country, right wow. in New Haven, Connecticut. So in the 70s. So yeah, he's wow. This dovetails nicely into my next question because I would like you to go into what coercive control is. And we're already touching on it, obviously, but it took me a minute to understand the difference because there's post-separation abuse and different kinds of abuse, but then what is coercive control within that? And then I, I you know, finally clicked what, how one links to the other or is amounts to the other, but in your words, would you sort of describe for everyone the differences or how they go together? Sure. So I would say that uh, post-separation abuse is a strategy of coercive control. It's a tactic. So coercive control is the umbrella term and everything else falls under there. It's not that post-separation abuse is a piece of, uh, is, 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 so in other words, it really is the umbrella term. It's the foundation of most domestic violence. Sometimes I use domestic abuse because it doesn't always have to be violent. What we right. know about, right? So what we know about coercive control and what we know about domestic violence is most domestic violence is based on one person needing to have power and control over another. So it's a very small portion of domestic violence that's situational, meaning that there are people who have maladaptive coping skills. And when they're frustrated or drunk or using a substance, they are volatile, they are violent. And that is horrifying. No mm. question about it. But it may not be based on power and control. Coercive control oftentimes starts out as non-physical. And the physical act can often be the last act and certainly the most deadly. 90% of coercive control victims suffer post-separation abuse. Mm -hmm. You see, the coercive control is the overarching and the other things fall under. Sure. So, so certainly coercive control is exerted in a variety of ways. It's exerted through psychological abuse, which could be intimidation, isolation, gaslighting, manipulation. It can be exerted through financial abuse. Of course, that comes up in a variety of ways, right? Financial abuse is you need to be on a budget or you can't get your nails done, but it also is, hey, you should work the other part-time job because we need more funds in the house because I'm busy spending my money on other things, right? So it comes up in different ways. It can be legal abuse, which a lot of people are now calling vexatious litigation. Mm -hmm. How can I harm you in the court system? Certainly by not paying child support, certainly by not divorcing you, certainly by taking custody or wanting custody of the children when I literally had no interest um, in the children. And um, this is a little side note, but these people are not good parents. So please don't tell your children your daddy loves you. He doesn't. Don't lie to your children. Don't. Mm. It doesn't mean we have to say something bad, but it certainly we need to reaffirm what our children are feeling instinctually that something yep. doesn't feel right, and that financial abuse, of course, flows over into the legal abuse because people use the legal system to financially abuse, right? Yes, hand in hand, mm -hmm. hand in hand, and of course, sexual abuse is part of that. Um, the sexual coercion that occurs, and then use of the children as pawns. And I think you know I'm in the process right now of creating a graphic of what that looks like. But we really have to be clear. Like that's children as a weapon oh. to harm the adult victim, but it's also children as the caretaker to the abuser, right? It's oh, like yes. meshment. It's children feeling like they can't let that other person down because 
if they don't align with the abuser, some children fear the abuser, but others don't. They don't, it is fair, but they don't know it's fair. And so oftentimes there is an underlying subconscious understanding that if I do not align with him, he is going to treat me like he treated my mother, Uh right? And he is going to harm in some way. He is going to reject me. He is going to abandon me. So the loss is is in this manifests in children in so many ways. It's so important that we look beyond that fear, that overt fear model that some children have about a parent. Some children do, but sometimes these children don't overtly fear that person. And all of that is this stripping away of the autonomy is how do I create, um, ego compromise. How do I create a person who maybe had really strong sense of self? And how do I strip that away? And when I have children, that's exactly my goal. Because if I can strip you of your autonomy as a child, and you do not develop a healthy ego, you will never have agency. Mm. And if you do not have agency, you will never recognize me for who I am. It is so sad and so powerful. And I see it, unfortunately, see too much of it and hear too much of it. And and I, you made the point earlier, and thank you, because I brought up post-separation abuse first, but coercive control is happening in the marriages, and especially with this audience specifically, they're most likely in divorce or having gone through one. And so all of those abuses were used to control you. And then during the divorce phase or after you've left or they've left, now it's called post-separation abuse. And and again, they're using slightly different tactics or maneuvers or, or, or this abuse now trumps that one, but it's all to control. Absolutely. It's all about control. And, you know, Rosenfeld did a study, I think in 2021, Rosenfeld and colleagues, and he, 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 they found that research shows us that this pathology is drawn towards conflict. I do a webinar for lawyers. The webinar is going to go live soon so that any lawyer law firm can sign up to to, to view the webinar. It'll probably be next week. Oh, this is um, good to know. Okay. Thanks. We have to, I yes. have to know about this. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So it's for attorneys, court professionals, and it's also for advocates. Um, and, and certainly any, any person who's a protective parent would probably benefit from watching it. And, um, and of course that fee is not the same as a lawyer fee for the webinar, because the, the idea is that we need to get the education out there. Mm. And, and I would add to this whole post-separation abuse is that one of the things that I think happens is that when post-separation abuse starts to occur, victims often, you know, are just kind of blindsided because it's like, I would say that I probably wouldn't have left. I had tried to leave several times, but I wouldn't have left had the post-separation abuse been so not been so significant. Mm. It was like, it was like, oh, this is very clearly abuse now. Right. But I would say that we often perhaps neglect to recognize that this abuse of the children in particular has been going on pre-separation for years, that this is a methodical desire to ensure a retention, a regaining, uh, a maintaining of control of these children so that when the victim does decide to leave, He's already, and I say he, we know this can happen certainly um, with women against men, but sure. patriarchal norms that are in place, it's more obvious. Statistically, not- we're, we're, we're right in saying he. Yeah. Yes. And so what he has been doing all along is elevating his status with the child unbeknownst to this 
woman who has felt like he must be a good guy or he can't be that bad. And so there is recognition of such a significant loss because not only are you dealing with post-separation abuse, but there's an acknowledgement that this has been going on for a long time yeah, and it's harmed your attachment to your children. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And again, I see that so many times also. And so thank you for um, leading us into the topic of children, because there is a phrase that you say on your website a couple of times that makes so much sense. And let's see if I can find it, but it's about how basically abuse to the woman and abuse to the children is not siloed. One is completely intertwined with the other. Right. And, and you, I, you know, you see the meme a lot on Instagram that says, if you're abusing the mother of your children, you're abusing your children. Yes. But that concept has not been recognized in like family court, for instance. So the reason why though, like, I think it's important to unpack the reason why historically children were perceived as victims of abuse. If they had physical harm, right. Or there was evident neglect or sexual abuse. This abuse we're talking about is not any of, I mean, it could be those, which sure. is horrifying, but oftentimes it's not that it's this psychological, it's called maltreatment. Actually, it's beyond abuse okay. because psychological maltreatment in the world of CPS encompasses abuse and neglect. Abuse is considered an act of commission. I intended to do it. Neglect okay. is considered an act of omission, almost non-intentional. Okay. Thank you for outlining that. Yeah. I never so, really thought about it before, but obviously it makes, makes a lot of sense. Okay. Yeah. So, so the problem is, is think about CPS. How often do they actually substantiate abuse of psychological maltreatment? Almost never that I've seen. Ever. Like it just doesn't happen. A, a parent could call their child stupid 20 gazillion times and maybe CPS will come out and say, listen, you can't talk to your kid that way. But it's, this is the unfortunate part is if we can't see it, you know, if we can't see it or there hasn't been a, a clear disclosure, like we have, like what happens in sexual abuse, which again, these are all horrifying things. Yeah. And I would even go further than that. The conversation really needs to be that physical abuse, sexual abuse, neglect, all of those are psychological abuse. Yes. They all are. They're all based on someone grooming you, coercing you, putting you down, harming you, threatening you, intimidating you. They are all coercive control. Yeah. They, you know, the dynamic of coercive control. And so nobody recognizes that. When yeah. a child comes in and aligns with an abuser, a judge says, well, that's what the kid wants. The kid must be safe. Instead of saying, um, wait a minute, like what's really going on here? Right. And, you know, I maybe, I don't know if I'm jumping to this too early, but we can jump around all we want. Um, going into the legislative part of coercive control, I'm in California and there was so much excitement in 2020 when um, coercive control was added to, um, you know, sort of our laws. But it really, not only did it kind of fall short, but I know in your state in Connecticut, um, well, I'm sorry, I, let me backtrack. It sounds like in Scotland, they added into their bill to add funding in to then train decision makers and like judges, et cetera, on coercive control. In California, they did not do that. And even going farther in this statistics, it makes me so angry. I have to say it. 2020, we had a $75 billion surplus in our general fund, $75 billion of extra money in California in our, in our fund. And they wow. said, we didn't have the money to train our judges. 
we didn't have the we couldn't put any funding towards it um you know and then there were all these other shenanigans that went on in the background it wasn't just that um but so it, it was so disheartening to you know here there's this law in place and then a year later judges are still saying well I her 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 testimony's not valid because she went back to him after that uh you know she you, you know I it, it, they're just completely ignorant and the rulings are still shocking and so it doesn't seem like it did much so anyway I jumped into California because I'm so <laughs> I get so passionate about it but I know that you know it was passed in Connecticut and some other states as well so you you chime in on legislation wherever you want to start. Sure. So I would say there's a couple of things. I think that first of all, the codifying of coercive control as a form of domestic violence is so vital, which is why Massachusetts is working on theirs now. And the reason being is that again, not all domestic violence is physically violent. Mm -hmm. So the the most disheartening thing about this law is that it's taken this long to even begin to consider the idea that if a woman is not physically harmed then she did not suffer domestic violence, which is just total bullshit right. because the coercive control is the foundation of most domestic violence. So there's that. In Scotland, they have a different law. Their law criminalizes coercive control. Okay. Right? So that means that you've broken a law and you are now seeing you crim it's criminal, right? Right, right. It's in the we criminal law book, not the civil, which is for California, right. for instance. Okay. Okay. Right. It's the United States. We have not looked at criminalizing yet. We are not okay. there. A lot okay. of people have an aversion to that. They worry about being flipped on victims, which as you know, I mean, we can, you know, I will just briefly state that the statistics about male victims of domestic violence are not accurate. It is mostly DARVO deny, attack, reverse victim and offender. Yep. And it may in fact be people engaged in non-heterosexual relationships because that is when power and control will, will exude its head, ah. right? So, um, so certainly not diminishing anyone who is uh, perhaps in a gay relationship and is being coercively controlled. That's when we see it happening in male to male relationships, okay. female relationships. Um, so that being said, um, Alex Kazer, who helped support Jennifer's law here in the state of Connecticut, and ours is much stronger than yours, um, said there's a lot about you can have a law in the books, but unless it's enforced, it means nothing, which is why I'm doing these attorney trainings. Okay. Awesome. Yes. But I think what happens is that legislators who get funding or major agencies, I'm not going to mention any agencies here, but there are major agencies that get funding from judicial. If I get funding from judicial, I don't want to mandate that judges need to be trained. Mm -hmm. Judges have a lot of power. I want people to kind of look through the lens for a moment and not to be dismissive, again, of male victims and their experiences. But when we think about the court system and the criminal justice system and basically all macro systems in society, the government, all of these systems primarily have been run by men. And there are patriarchal norms that harm men and women and boys and girls. Jackson Katz does an amazing expose on this. His video, uh, The Macho Paradox, his book, The Macho Paradox, really unpacks how all of these norms are just so harmful to everyone. So mm -hmm. this is not a conversation of us versus them. Sure. The problem is, is the judicial system is run by people in positions of power based on patriarchal norms. And you called it ignorance a moment ago. And I think that you're absolutely accurate and I appreciate that, but I'm going to take it a step further. Okay. It's ignorance or it's ego. And if it's ego, 
then we are dealing with the same people in the system that are harming us in the intimate relationship dynamics. I love that. It's like intentional ignorance. It's like, no, it's ego. It's ego. It's, it's, I get where you're going. That is, that makes so much sense. Yes. Yes. Harmful ego. um, So I always say not all narcissists are coercive controllers, but all coercive controllers are narcissists. Uh Uh-huh. And so we are talking about people who are on that spectrum of narcissism that are unwilling to have open conversations and dialogue around what is the difference between a victim and an abuser? Because I can tell you, it's not that hard. It's not that hard to figure out. But if you weren't willing to learn that, that's not ignorance. That's a pathology that I'm concerned about, honestly. And so if that's who's running our systems, it's rather disconcerting to say the least. And so these, these judicial systems, the judges did not want these types of things added to California's law. They fought it. And so that's exactly what we ran into in the state of Connecticut. We have a great law, but do you understand that there is not one state in our country that prioritizes the well-being of children, the safety and emotional well-being of children as the primary factor in determining custody? Now, the good news is Caden's Law with VAWA is going to hopefully create that. That's wonderful. But I go back to, and this is no insult on the Gay Marriage Act. I think it's amazing. We need a Gay Marriage Act. Sure. Why don't we have a Caden's Law Act, like a federal legislation? Why is this so difficult to pass federally, to create a mandate federally? Why do we have to do it state by state? Right. Why is this the process when we are talking about the well-being of children? And why is it 2022 or 2023 and we still are not prioritizing? Jennifer's law could not. Let me I'll just be clear. So Jennifer's law, we tried to make that the primary factor in determining the safety and well-being of children in determining custody. We had to put the word shall in there shall be leaves it to interpretation. So would you tease that out for me even more? So in the, in the legal system, and I'm not a lawyer, but in this world, when you add the word shall, it changes the defining characteristics of the phrase. So if it said children will be, Mm. it said, this is the primary factor in determining child custody. Mm -hmm. We had to change the verbiage. Why? Why? And like you said, why are we creating laws that have to point out to decision makers that children's well-being should and, be? And why do not, why are judges unwilling to be trained on the pathology of abusers? Why are judges unwilling to affirm that 50-50 custody may be appropriate in some circumstances, but this should not be 50-50 custody across our country? Right. I mean, you know, there's so many conversations that we, I'm sure it's crazy. I know. It's crazy. You're, it's crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. No, and I just, I got a, off a call with a potential client who told me about horrific abuse. And then she said, but you know, so I'm going for 50-50 because every, all three attorneys I consulted said, that's the only thing I, you know, I can hope for. And it's the eight billionth time I've heard that. And it's true. That's what they keep hearing. And it just, right. So then we're back to trying to get legislation through that points out to judges, mm-hmm. decision makers, that it might not be in the child's best interest. Right. What is the threat? Where did this start? W- w- was it money? Was it custody, like 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 child support? Was it like, I, I, I've never actually dug down deep to figure out what the big threat against 
giving a child to somebody who is the more protective, safe parent? Yeah. I mean, I would say that first of all, the child support, right? If I have 50, 50, I don't have to pay. Right. I'm an abuser. What's the number one thing that matters well, to you? It's your children, control right? that I'm right. controlling so everybody. Control. Yeah. Yeah. But I would say that if we look back historically, systemically, I mean, if we take coercive control out of the micro intimate partners, right? Okay. The reality is, is that the oppression of people who had less power has been the framework of our society. Yeah. I mean, you think about slavery, right? Yeah. You yeah. Know, the oppression of people of color. You know, we think about women. I mean, I was talking to a class today about the Salem witch trials. I mean, that was about women who were trying to, to be helpers in society and had alternative forms of medication that they were using. Right. Um, so this is about power, power and, and abuse, which is goes and, back to the dawn of time. You're right. You're it right. It really does. It really does. It's patriarchal norms that, you know, I think it's just so important. I have to reiterate it. This harms boys mm. just as much as it harms girls. Mm -hmm. And that's where the shift has to occur. Mm -hmm. yeah. And, you know, it answers a question from a podcast um, that I did before this, where we always say like, why don't, why don't they just move on? They've got the girlfriend, they've, they left the family, they bailed on everyone. They let, and they can't, but if you think about anyone in history, who's ever been in control of a group, whether, like you said, it's slavery, whether it's, um, yeah, we can come up with all sorts of scenario, scenarios out of time. Oh no, you, I have trained you into submission. You are less than me. I don't care where I move on to in my life. You will forever, as far as I can keep you under my thumb, under my foot, keep you down in any way, shape, or form that I can. And it's that pathology, you're right, in that way of thinking. They just can never let go right. of that they target. Can't let go. Right. Because so that's about right there, their level of shame. And the only way that they feel good is if they have power and control over others. And, you know, it's a cult of one, people say, right? Yes. You know, in an intimate relationship, it's a cult of one. You don't even realize what's going on. The idea that it's not that hard to discern the difference when you have two clients come in and you call it high conflict, not you necessarily, but an attorney, right? Yeah, an attorney, and, right. Yeah. And they say, oh, it's high conflict. And, oh, you know, these people can't get along. And it's mm. like, no, it's coercive control. And he is a coercive controller. Mm -hmm. That's one of the things I'm going to actually probably post on that this week. But this idea that we need to start using the noun coercive controller, you know, I read that on your website and I was like, oh, yes, yes. A noun. Yes. I, I love it. I yes. noticed that just today. Yeah. Yeah. Because we need to call them for who they are and really begin to highlight that, you know, it's just the experiences of these people and the children. I had um, a call today from a young woman who heard me on a little bit culty, um, one of the podcasts I was on. And she said, I actually realized by listening to you that my father, all these years, I haven't talked to my mother in 10 years, that my father was a course of controller. And thankfully my mother didn't cut me out. And I like, it was for her a moment of recognition because she had been so indoctrinated to, you know, and that's what these abusers do. And it's just so heartbreaking.
Absolutely. It really is. And it, we have to give it a name. We have to understand it. We have to talk about it again, which is why I'm so grateful that you're on the podcast today. Um, and specifically with this audience, because it's what they've been dealing with in the marriage and after. And, and when it comes to anything with legislation or otherwise, what can people do? Do you have any recommendations if someone's like, I'm passionate about this too, what can I do? Absolutely. So I think it's really important to find a legislator in your state who's interested in child welfare issues. Usually you can find that in their bio somewhere online. Yes, I know, for instance, State Senator Susan Rubio in California is the one who proposed the bill in California. Amazing. Yeah. So, so find people in your state who are interested in this topic and then begin to pursue with them the importance of it. So it is a grassroots effort, you know, Mm -hmm. it really is. And, and so the, but the louder we are, um, the more that will be heard. Yeah. So I feel like that's really important. I think it's also important that victims realize that attorneys are afraid to use coercive control and they're afraid of being ostracized by the judiciary. It's incredible. They will tell them, don't know, we can't talk about abuse. We can't talk about anything. That's going to be horrible for your case. And it just shocks me. They're afraid. Yeah. And so finding an attorney who's willing to talk about it is important. And finding an attorney who actually doesn't diminish your experiences. Like those are all important things. And it's hard. It's really Mm -hmm. hard because I think, you know, attorneys are also trying hard to navigate the courtroom. And once you get known to be that lawyer, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult, but it takes, I think, um, a level of ethical integrity to be able to do that certainly should be doing it. (laughs) I agree. I agree. Thank you for that. And so, you said something earlier that that made me think about your protective parenting program. Usually it's the healthy parent <laughs> that is listening to this podcast and, and reading about your protective parenting program was so interesting to me. So tell me, tell us about it, what the goal is, how people can be a part of it. Sure. When my children, um, when I left my ex finally and suffered significant post-separation abuse, uh, part of the reason of recognizing I needed to leave at that point was that I had realized my daughter was really filled with contempt for me. Like, and I, and I couldn't put my finger on it for years and I just kept trying. So I think what I recognized after I left is that I could not just be mom anymore. I had to be trauma informed clinician in my home. And so what the program is about is creating trauma informed protective parents so that when you are with your children, you are so flooded by your own anxiety and complex post-traumatic stress. And your children oftentimes are triggering you, whether they're saying, well, that's not true, or you're the one who financially abused us. Dad said you took all the money or you're not paying for college, whatever it is. Parroting things they're hearing from dad. Yeah, exactly. Or worse, you know, maybe being physically aggressive. I've had clients where that's happened Uh, Same. or, or they don't come to visit anymore. Like there's all of those things. So the program is set up in this way that you are the lifeboat and navigating the stormy seas of this coercive controller and your child is out there and they need a lifeline. And so how do we present in a way for our children that they see uh, we are the safe parent, but they are not clearly able to discern that because they've been told such horrifying things about us. Mm -hmm. So how do we shift our behaviors in the home? to a lens where we're looking at our child instead of saying, oh, 
he's so defiant or why is she so mean or why did this happen? It's more like, ah, that behavior is a trauma reaction. And, and what can I do in that situation to alleviate it? And to add to that a little bit, if I'm an abuser, a coercive controller, and I am attempting to create ego compromise, creating a personality in my child that is compromised, then in some ways I'm grooming them to be like me. Sure. Which is most protective parents' greatest fear. Greatest fear. Greatest fear. I don't want a child who's a, I'll use the term, narcissist. Yeah. Right? And so sometimes these course of controllers very much entitle their children. They don't have boundaries and it's very unhealthy. Well, if your child's coming to you and they are behaving a certain way that triggers you and you are trauma reactive in those moments, you are actually reaffirming those negative behaviors. Mm. And so really it's about becoming trauma responsive so that in those moments you diminish those negative behaviors they have without causing injury to their egos. So it can't be, that's mean. Don't talk to me that way. You're disrespectful Mm -hmm. because this child is already so compromised in this development of their, this very harsh development that they've been experiencing. It Mm -hmm. only affirms for them that they're not valuable. Yeah. And we have to actually behave like a clinician in the home. So I give people the tools to really present in a way. Um, And also we talk about loss and grief because this whole thing is about not having the children that maybe we expected to have, not having the family, the partner, you know, who, who would ever think that we'd be talking about our children being abuse victims and nobody else, by the way, even acknowledges it as abuse, right? It's a disenfranchised grief. It's a grief that no one gets because like, what are you talking about? Your kid's not abused. They're perfectly happy. Their father just bought them a new car. Like, (laughs) Mm -hmm. right. Right. Because I I have clients that are women who have pretty much lost their children at this point. I mean, is there hope that they'll someday have a relationship again? So there's a couple of things that need to happen. She has to get healthier. Right. And the one thing they're our children are yearning for us is for us to have personal power. I want like victims to understand victims and survivors to understand that he did everything to diminish you. And because of that, you are diminished in the life of your child. Mm. So the only way to elevate you is for you to come from a place of personal power. That's not I'm right. And you're wrong. You can say what you want to me. You can do what you want to me, but I'm still standing. And I'm still waiting here for you. I will always be here waiting for you. So it's about becoming healthier, right? And that comes with our own trauma-informed therapist who can support us, who understands coercive control. I mean, I'm going to be launching a program for therapists because there's not enough therapists who understand. Thank you. Yes, thank you. (laughs) And so the idea is that having a trauma-informed therapist who can actually support victims in their own healing So that when and if their children come back, they are so ready, they're no longer triggered by those horrifying words their kid might be saying to them. I I say we we have armor on and our children are sending us arrows to see if we're weak, to see if we can withstand it, to see if we're still standing after they're done. And we have to kind of just deflect those arrows over and over again and still be standing. Now, that doesn't mean we say we, we ignore their bad behavior. Sure. And, you know, it's more like, you know, I don't appreciate that, you know, 
that's not true. Mm-hmm. It's about a diminishing and a deflecting of that, that injury they're trying to give you, but sure. we don't want to, we don't want to return the injury because right. that's not healthy for them. Right. And then we're role modeling for them healthy responses. That's incredible. And obviously an area that uh, people need so much help in because they're just at a loss and mm-hmm. it feels like they have lost all control and there is no hope. And, you know, then if they're like 100% in the clutches, I'll say of you know, the abuser and the coercive controller, it just seems like there's no hope. And so this is incredible. Thank you so much, Dr. Christine Cochiella. So what is your website people can go to, to find the um, protective parenting program? So it's coercive control consulting or drcochiola.com or I know your heart.com because okay. only protective moms know their children's hearts so well. Absolutely. That's so wonderful. Thank you so much. I know we've covered so much and there's so much more to talk about in a little bit amount of time, but um, I'm again, so grateful that you came on. We cannot talk about this enough. Contact your local legislator that that gets it. Um, find one and you know start there and let's just keep the conversation going. What? One more thing. Yes. So ratifying the ERA because that creates equality for women. Women are not in our constitution. It's been a hundred years now since it's been proposed that women would be added to the constitution and it has still not been ratified. And I don't understand why this administration is not, you know, I'm just quite disappointed. Yeah, I'm surprised. Yeah. Yeah. So um, so really creating equality for women. And then what happens when we create equality is just like when someone's discriminated against, they can file lawsuit. Uh huh. If you're discriminated against in the family court, you can file a lawsuit. And we're seeing that happen, but we need the ERA ratified. I mean, I'll just admit it. I did not realize we were not in the ERA. It's the ERA. Wow. Okay. Thank you for that. Again, a really important piece of information to raise awareness. And okay. Anything else? Any any other nuggets we need to I'm sure there are many. Thank you so much. Oh, good. Appreciate it. Thank you too. I really appreciate it. So nice meeting you and speaking with you. And um, yes, and and I'm going to look forward your information for the attorneys and and therapists and stuff as well. So I'll keep an eye on that and promote that in any way I can. Because sure, sure. On Instagram, I'm sure I'll be having um, an advertisement. I'll let people know when that's going to be opening, and they can send their attorneys to it. So wonderful. Thank you for letting people know. Okay, take care, Dr. Cochilla. Thank you again. Bye. Bye.